live from Naples, this is The Morning Break with Jane Ritter. Morning, everyone. Uh, cold, cold day in Naples. <laughs> um, but a little bit of sun. Well, just a little. Um, this morning, I have a fabulous guest, Fatima. Um, she's going to correct me. I know she's going to correct me and I apologize. Um, we're going to be talking about all things IELTS. Live from Naples, this is The Morning Break with Jay Ritter on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Okay, and just as I'm waiting for my guest to join, um, I will just tell you a little bit about my week. It's been quite a busy one with exams and writing, but not, um, not IELTS. Um, it was actually, um, it was actually, uh, university exams. Um, quite a lovely, lovely day. Fatima, are you there? <laughs> Hello. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> I'm so glad you're here. I've had quite a few, um, uh, quite a few radio shows um, that we've had to sort of then go and record and upload. I am so happy to hear your voice. <laughs> Me too. And I'm just waking up some hoping to really kind of uh, be fully awake, to be honest, because it's 5 a.m. here and I'm, you know, gradually <laughs> pulling myself, oh my myself together. Yeah. You're wonderful. You're wonderful. Can you just tell our listeners where you are? I'm in Mexico now. So, yeah, this is, um, I think, seven hours behind you all. So 5 a.m. Oh. here, it's 11 uh, in, in the UK, as far as I understand. So mm -hmm. I normally wake up at seven or so this is kind of... But isn't there like the 5am club that people say, you, I, you know, you get lots done? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sure they do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually more of a night owl. I'm not sure about you. I'm a morning person, so I really function well after 7am or so normally. And, uh, and then honestly, since I've been so hyperactive on LinkedIn and everywhere, and given that I live in the, in the Americas, so to speak, mm. it's really challenging not to be disrupted and not to be distracted um, mm. by all this social media around us. So, you know, normally I would be most productive and uh, if I got my uninterrupted time and attention in the morning hours, but that's also when I'm kind of doing my social media and everything else. So it's, it's, I'm, I'm still learning how to manage all this. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, I mean, I think we've all gone through a very, um, We've gone through a huge change, haven't we? And um, but we, we'll get onto that a little bit later. For our listeners, could you just um, tell them a little bit about your journey, how you got to, to today, your teaching journey? Yeah, it's it's been a long one. I don't always like to admit it because it really ages me. But I, I started more than twenty years ago when I was around seventeen years old, so really super young, and. Wow. Um, I'm a non-native speaker, so I, I, of course, didn't speak fluent English back then, but I did, um, I had just passed an intermediate level exam, so it was good enough to start with kids and adults who were beginners at the time. And then I later got into exams and um, business English as well. Mm -hmm. And a major turning point was when I moved to Australia in, in uh, 2007 for a year. So I, um, I had already been teaching um, oh, where were very you in actively. Australia? in sydney for, okay. for just a year yeah I i'm from it. melbourne so um, oh wow mm. oh wow i wish i could have gone and i, I hope to go one day because <laughs> i love the country and i really would have loved to stay but it, it just wasn't in the cards at the time so um but it but i got to teach ielts a lot so i had already been teaching for a while before that back in hungary as well mm -hmm. and i got to teach even more in in uh, sydney and um and then when I was 29, I moved to Mexico and I have been here ever since. And my ELT career really picked up uh, here because I had had enough experience and I got the opportunity from various employers to, uh, to finish my Delta. I got into publishing. Uh, I became a director of studies. 
I got into writing, item writing. So lots of things happened that I really attribute to being in Mexico. So I'm super grateful and super happy about all that as well. You've done um, quite a lot there. (laughs) Um, Amazing. Yes. (laughs) And you're also a Delta um, module to tutor, correct? Yes. Yes, that's right. I, I got trained up in 2016 with the lovely uh, International House in Newcastle. Mm-hmm. And um, and I'm eternally grateful. It was a great experience. I learned a lot. And and I really got to ponder the, the difficulty around skills teaching in particular on that course. I really, after having done my own Delta and after having really struggled on my own Delta um, with skills in particular, mm. I, I finally really got to understand that it's really hard for most candidates more so than the, what we call the, the the systems assignments so grammar and vocabulary <clears throat> and the reason is not because delta candidates are lazy or or teachers in general um but because there is much less in terms of proper skills teaching in the course books and in, in um there is probably a lot in textbooks or journals or uh, but that doesn't often mean you know tangible uh, stuff that we can pick mm. up and go into a classroom with and, and teach off the cuff and so, you know, it's one thing to understand things and to have the ideas and to know best practices, but it's even more helpful if there is good stuff already written for us and we just need to still tweak it to our group and to our you know specific learners. Mm-hmm. And I, I noticed this difference that while there are good books that are more and more communicative and, and are better and better at uh, teaching grammar and vocab, skills teaching is, is still lagging behind or was at the time as well. So that's that's how I uh, kind of got inspired to. And I think, yeah, I mean, looking at, at IELTS, um, it is very skills based, isn't it? And yes. And I know a lot of, I mean, a lot of students I know that do IELTS really come down in the reading test. I don't know if it's the actual items themselves that um, that are tricky. <laughs> or whether they just don't know how to read, but you're going to enlighten us, I hope. (laughs) Yeah, the the whole thing is tricky. And what makes it so challenging for candidates is, well, many things. One is that often they don't expect it to be be this hard, especially Mm. if they have taken main suite exams before and they had a different format and they were, of course, on lower levels, perhaps, on levels, first of all, you know, not just a band scale situation, which in itself is really, really different. And um, and they probably weren't exposed to so many item types, you know, speaking of the receptive skills now, yeah, as you mentioned, reading is the trickiest because as far as I know, there are like 14 different question types. Um, and you don't get exposed to that many in, in the average course book or on, um, on, on the Cambridge exams typically. So it's a, a huge variety of questions and uh, and quite varied within each passage. So you, you get to read a, a passage about one topic and then you have to maneuver your way, way around you know, up to three, four different question types uh, based on just that one text. So that's one difficulty. The time limit on um, all four skills is another difficulty. Mm. And and of course, we were also planning to talk about productive skills today. So there's a lot to say about um, about L1 interference. So how mm. our mother tongue tends to really interfere with what we think an essay should look like, what we think a, a report, a descriptive report should look like, because it may be, it, it might, might do in, in our own language, but that doesn't mean that that's what's expected in English and on, on this particular exam as well. Yeah. Um, when you when you are teaching, what are the, the tools that you rely on? What are your sort of top five teaching tools? Yeah, that's um, that is an amazing question because, you know, with the pandemic and with all this technology available for teachers worldwide and cheaper and cheaper or, or sometimes free of charge, we do have a plethora to choose for, from. And that's really lucky. And um, and sometimes overdo the tech in my experience as a result we get carried away by the, the latest mm. gadgets and stuff and and in my experience um and, and and to be fair just to caveat this i'm not actively in the classroom today um um 
but I do believe that what students are looking to do is to connect to a human being and to really mm. hear our thoughts and our opinions and our to, to, to benefit from our expertise and how we deliver it through what tech, what platform, you know, is often secondary and uh, we might kind of forget about this sometimes. So I really believe in authentic connecting and just authentic materials and using authentic materials, especially on higher levels and, you know, into IELTS terms, it's band six and above, mostly yeah. the academic paper um, and using YouTube, using podcasts and really tapping into the learner's own interests and seeing how we could um, use them um, to, to keep them engaged and motivated through their IELTS journey, which as we know is, you know, really tricky and there will be uh, and there's, a, there's an awful lot riding on it for for mm -hmm. many students. Indeed. I mean, it's sort of it's a it's going to help them achieve what they set out to achieve, or it's not. Yeah, um, yeah, that's very stressful, and um, and you know sometimes they you know the, I, I work with a lot of doctors in, in particular, doctors, biologists, engineers preparing to either you know practice in Australia a lot of them mm -hmm. um, hello to all if they're listening you know heart surgeons etc so a lot was hinging on on whether they uh, could get the band score usually band seven so for these really prestigious jobs or high profile things or or, or PhD uh, you know courses mm. um, they usually need an academic seven overall and they usually find me or used to find me um, through referrals and often they already had a seven in reading, say, or in, in listening, but they were really struggling in writing typically. So we would just have to make sure that um, we kind of maintained those skills that, that they already knew how to do well and really focused on on writing. So we, and often, you know, just to keep it a, a bit lighter and to keep it a bit more varied, I encourage that we look for YouTube, you know, YouTube channels, podcasts, other things. And we, yeah. of course, looked at past papers. So I, I talk a lot on my blog and uh, on social media about how how I, how I am against, or it, just, or it, it might seem I was, like... I was just going to say. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I thought you were against that. <laughs> not so black and white. Of course, they are amazing to give us, you know, if we are new to IELTS as teachers. And of course, it's very important to expose our learners to to the real deal, to the real thing. And it's mm. much less diluted than looking at bits and pieces in a course book often, uh, which has its other benefits, especially if it's a good course book, and especially if we know how to scaffold it right, and you know, all sorts of other uh, caveats again. But but have, looking at the whole thing and in, in, in its entirety, as in, you know, a full reading test, a full listening test with the real timing, the real life timings of the thing, is super useful and super beneficial. What I am against, though, is using this as the only teaching tool or using yeah. the teaching tool and just dumping things on them and and then sharing the answer key only without much reflecting or, or maybe with a little, little bit of reflecting post hoc. So after after uh, with a whole past paper by them, and that's just not really teaching at all. So I, I'm not even going to say it's bad teaching because it's not really teaching. So Some people tend to um, tend to take that approach with exam classes in general, um, and I just <laughs> I don't unless unless you are a, a highly um, aware student and you can you can actually um, draw these comparisons. I can understand. Um, I'm really sorry about the background noise. I've got my dogs and they're Aww. just a little bit restless they That's generally do make an appearance. <laughs> <laughs> um it's been really horrible weather here and so they've been they're feeling a bit cooped up i think uh, uh, um yeah. so i do apologize in advance but i know that you're a dog lover so um you'll <laughs> probably be quite forgiving yeah um i'm sorry now i've lost my my train of thought Jane. well you were <laughs> just saying how teachers use past papers and again this is not to be super critical because I, I did do that. So everything that I'm mentioning, uh, mm. uh, you know, as things to avoid are things that I was doing when I first got my first IELTS student mm. in 2006, perhaps or so. 
And, you know, just one day I got the call or the email, you know, that I'm, I'm a dentist. I'm a militantist. I remember, I still remember him. <laughs> and I have to get the seven, band seven academic in a month or six weeks time. Can you help me? And I was like, what are we talking again? So I had to look oh into this like we, like we all do. And because I had been teaching so actively for so long, because I had had a lot of experience with uh, what we today call the Cambridge Advanced, uh, C1, and a little bit with the, the first and uh, the proficiency. I was preparing people for it. I had taken it myself. So I thought, you know, what? how hard can it be? And yeah, I was in for quite a surprise just in terms of format <laughs> and mm. and other things but that's the right thing to do to say yes and to start somewhere and if it means over relying past papers at first but then again today you might not have to so there are uh, IELTS teacher training courses mine is one uh, obviously but mm. there, there is more material there is more awareness it's not such a new exam anymore um, that it, it couldn't be done anymore so we don't need to improvise so much I don't think yeah um, course books are, there aren't very many around that sort of, anyway, we won't, we won't be talking about recommending any course books, but I, I found that when I was preparing students for IELTS, um, it was actually, the, the, it was, and also preparing teachers to teach IELTS, um, we just found that the, there was a, quite a distinct lack of, of good material out there. And it's to do with <clears throat> uh, subskill awareness. So really when, and again, this is nobody's fault. I'm, I don't think it's, um, you know, the right, the author's fault necessarily or other. It's really just, uh, we, we see reflected, you know, the, the, the idea of, of a good lesson in terms mm -hmm. of pre-teaching or leading into the topic, activating a bit of their schemata or, or pre-teaching vocabulary, God forbid. And then setting a gist question, and and then then off you go. You know, you answer all the rest of the questions on on the whole reading paper, and that's really CELTA level um, outcome based testing. So this is you know really not not teaching in the sense that it's not helping learners uh, focus on one particular sub skill at a time. Really, uh, kind of separated from from the other strategies that might also uh, be at play when we do something successfully as proficient users of of a language and of that particular skill. But we do need to, if you want to uh, uh, learn how to teach, I think even though, you know, in real life and in action and on the exam itself, we will be employing a lot of the soft skills together, of course, but we need, for, you know, for good teaching to happen, it's better to isolate them mm. and really plan the lesson. Um, in, in this micro fashion. So really kind of look at what stage I wanna um, do first and then how am I gonna make sure that everybody has understood it? What guiding questions am I going to write into the lesson plan to make sure that after each stage there is clear uh, feedback and clear recapping and pulling everybody back on board, so to speak, before we progress on to the next activity or the next exercise. So this is sometimes lacking and then students are just on board and they don't know where the train is going. Mm. Um, because they haven't drawn their conclusion about the previous stage or about the previous exercise. Um, so that's, that's a bit blurry. That's, well, you know, potentially even confusing. So choosing the skill, breaking it down, planning the lesson accordingly, taking the students through these and then raising their awareness after each stage. And at the end, um, is crucial. And, and this, you know, has to happen for them to be able to then repeat what they have done on their own as well. That's um, that is really sensible advice. But I mean, a, a lot of of ELT teachers out there are they've just done the CELTA, and none of that is really covered in the CELTA course. So how can it, they learn? Yeah, and <laughs> they haven't yeah, got you as their director of studies. Um, <laughs> how do they? How can they? They learn this. Yeah, and again. You know, it's really important that the CELTA exists and it's really important that people do it mm. um, and they take it and they learn how to go into a classroom confidently and how to, you know, teach grammar and vocabulary, especially using PPP. And, and, and so just the basics are super important and we need to feel confident 
about our role as well as a teacher, mm. to, you know, just in terms of us being the authority in the room. Um, and then, you know, moving on. So that's that's the important message, I think, to a large extent, is not to stop there, because what I'm seeing on social media and in ELT circles is that um, sometimes people think that, you know, I have the CELTA, this is the gold standard, uh, you know, this is the pinnacle, and <laughs> and it's really it's not true. Not. <laughs> it's, it's, it, 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 it is very misleading to think. So, and of course, Cambridge is not saying that, but somehow it still lands with people, partly because it's so expensive or um, that I've done it. So, you know, been there, done that, I'm done now, I'm a qualified English teacher and I can just practice with, with, with this qualification for 30 years to come and using the same ideas and, and, and tools that I learned. And that's really damaging because then I'm not really um, teaching uh, skills in particular because there is more emphasis, I think, on systems teaching mm. to start with. Absolutely. Um, what we, we mentioned the, um, we mentioned the, the practice or practicing with past papers um, as a sort of common mistake, but something that students need to know, um, and that can be done, <laughs> but not every lesson. Um, what what are some of the common mistakes that teachers make when they prepare students for IELTS? Um, well, you know, there is this, um, this whole idea around testing and scolding. So that's, yeah, to do with class mm. papers and just um, lack of awareness of soft skills and thinking that listening, you mm. know, this amorphous idea, you know, or, or reading is not a conjunction of a million other things to do with uh, what we call top down and bottom up processing and interactive processing, mostly in the case of IELTS. Um, and just how do we help learners with all that? So um, the common mistake really is this, that people believe that they know what they're doing, <laughs> you know, because um, they got the cells or just because they have been doing something for 20 plus years mm. um, and they don't feel brave enough or they don't, you know, uh, feel open enough or, cu or curious enough often because there is so much stuff available free of charge. Um, I'm, I, you know, if people follow me on LinkedIn, there is a lot of ideas and a lot of inspiration, and a lot of guidance. I really love to engage in the comments and mm. see what people are, you know, currently doing and, and, and just, um, you know, just kind of have a conversation there as well. But my blog is, is, is a, you know, kind of a collection of almost 300 entries now around diets and it's all free of charge. And there is also a masterclass yeah. on my website if people want to check out my website at fatimelosanci.com. That's an hour long overview of this distinction of between testing and, and actual teaching. Um, so there's a lot we can do, even if we, if we don't, you know, want to spend too much. Mm. And uh, I think that's, that's, it's not a mistake, but it's, it's often lacking, you know, to just this curiosity or this awareness around how there, we could do more. And, and I understand we're sometimes also time starved I you know I do talk to teachers and I am hearing their reality but if you really are passionate about your profession you you will find the time I I, I was commuting mm. a lot and I was you know, I've, I you know while washing dishes or cooking or do do I don't know you, you squeeze it in definitely yeah. yeah I mean I think the fact we now have podcasts um, mm -hmm. that we can make things audible um there is a lot more scope to actually um, listen and learn at, um, <laughs> or watch and learn, really. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I noticed that I didn't quite answer your question around supporting <laughs> students. Mm. So we were, we were talking about how we can you know, support teachers. I think this is key that, uh, that they see clearly what more is possible. And we mm -hmm. can support students by encouraging to, them to kind of do more with skills in their real life outside of mm -hmm. the classroom and, and just really subscribe to podcasts. Um, just consider what their favorite topics are in real life. So some people might be into history. Uh, others might care a lot for cars and car racing. I'm just, you know, kind of bluffing there. And then depending on the student, whether they're an engineer, a biologist, a doctor, but in their free time, they love cooking and they are really into, then they could subscribe to, to podcasts and 
um, and then report back to us. So we, I'm really mm. a huge fan of not only using authentic materials, but really honing or, or encouraging learner autonomy and and kind of focusing a lot on integrated skills. So if they get to listen something to something and then they take note on it and they come to class, you know, and, and they summarize it to us in this flipped fashion, mm. and then that starts a lovely discussion, that is like 15 birds with one stone. Uh, one of the birds, by the way, is that it's actually preparing them for EAP, mm. uh, really EAP in the sense that they will have to take note much less scaffolded in a real university setting. So they yeah. will be listening to two hour long lectures and it will be their job to to structure the content in their minds and really not just catch keywords only, but uh, in a, such a scaffolded fashion as, as the exam mm. is, but they will have to kind of grasp what the main points are and then know how to spell those words and write them and kind of write just enough context for them so that those notes will serve them you know well later on as well so this is you know multiply beneficial potentially and and of course if the if we kind of uh, encourage their accountability and, and besides their autonomy uh, that is super useful and i think writing is such a challenge skill uh, that just by raising their awareness of the fact that writing tends to be a struggle irrespective of l1 irrespective of, irrespective of la yeah exactly um mm -hmm. i mean i struggle <laughs> with some mm. things um certainly i mean you you don't write a cover letter for a cv not that that's one of the tasks but you know it's 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 getting rarer these days that you you actually do write a letter or yes. um maybe an article is probably something that are more likely to write but that would probably be more like a blog um so yeah i would say i'm pretty rusty <laughs> yeah so these skills are you know that allegedly native speakers or proficient speakers you know know or have mm. uh, are not always a given not even for proficient speakers or users of the language so this is how uh, preparing for a language exam does take, you know, getting to know the, the structure, the format, the requirements, even if somebody's on the level, because that's mm. another, you know, question, like when somebody, it's a typical question, like somebody approaches us and they want to take the exam in a month time and, uh, and they already, let's say they are quite fluent, uh, their speaking seems okay, but uh, what do we tell them? Um, and yeah, we need to kind of really um, carefully examine what how their other skills are doing. Well, you mm. know, they might just not have a propensity or not be super interested, and not and or not have a job that pushes them to write or read too much. Then you know, there are lifestyles that mm. are built around avoiding certain skills, and those will need to be strengthened. And and that will take more time, more effort, more energy. Definitely. I mean that I'm 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 pretty good with my spoken Italian. I communicate and operate quite well here in Italy. But mm. if I have to write a letter, <laughs> yeah. or uh, it's just um, yeah, it's really really hard work for me. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes, because there are different genre expectations, different. Mm. Um, I imagine, I, I know this about Spanish and I know this about mm. Mexican Spanish as opposed to Spanish Spanish. So I, I started learning Spanish while I was back in Europe and then I came here and I was so confused, you know, <laughs> for, <laughs> for a year or two and uh, just in speaking as well and then, then in writing as well, different conventions, different, um, um, you know, in pragmatic terms, but just in, in terms of audience and the layout and, and what's expected and just some awareness around this can really trip students on. Yeah. Let's just hold, we will continue this because I find it fascinating, um, but we're just going to pause for a second and go to the news.
This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The Christian Institute website carries a story on the reminder by Minister of State for Schools, Nick Gibb, that schools in England have a duty to remain politically impartial in their teaching and extracurricular activities. The guidance was published last year. But Mr Gibb was responding to MP Miriam Cates references to a YouGov poll which appears to reveal that the majority of UK children are being taught political ideology as fact and he issued the reminder. Ms Cates was referencing that children are being taught that they can be born in the wrong body as well as resources being used in schools which focus on the topic of gender identity. The DfE guidance comes as Scotland attempts to introduce new legislation on gender recognition, which is opposed by Westminster. The guidance states that schools should not under any circumstances work with or use materials produced by external agencies that take extreme political positions. The Varsity website reports on findings by a right-wing think tank that elite universities were more likely to use progressive terminology on their websites. Cambridge tops the table in the Radical Progressive University Guide, although the think tank Civitas does not appear to see this as a positive. Varsity highlights comments reported in the Daily Mail, which warned that half of our universities peddle their woke agenda to students. The think tank generated the findings after exploring university websites and reports, looking for a series of key phrases including trigger warning, white privilege and anti-racism. Those with high incidences of key phrases were at the top of the table. Varsity acknowledges a view that Cambridge's political culture is to the left of the national one, but also highlights key figures in academia who fe feature prominently in the conservative press. It's hard to stay away from politics as announcements of strikes continued late last week. The TES reports on the continued deadlock in Scotland whilst the Evening Standard covers talks between ministers and unions in England after the NEU confirmed strike dates for the coming weeks and months. These strikes are set to impact schools in England and Wales, although the BBC further reports on talks in Wales. Its news website reports that teachers and school leaders have been offered a one-off payment by the Welsh Government, similar to that offered to health workers, although unions have already said that the offer is not enough. Scottish media outlets have also carried a story about what it describes as fears about violence in schools. A clip now widely shared on social media shows an altercation between two students and that took place on the same day a male pupil was left unconscious following an assault. Whilst Police Scotland have said it's investigating both incidents, it has sparked debate on the state of behaviour in schools, particularly as such incidents have featured in headlines before. The Scottish Government has previously stated they're investing an additional £15 million this year to enhance capacity to effectively meet the needs of people and that they were very clear that violence is unacceptable. In further political news, the petition put forward by three men known as the Three Dads Walking will go to Parliament. The men who all lost daughters to suicide want to get suicide prevention on the school curriculum. The petition they set up now has more than 155,000 signatures, which means that it will be discussed in Parliament after previously failing to be heard. Finally, more than 20,000 defibrillators will be sent to almost 18,000 state-funded schools by the end of the academic year. It comes after the government committed to ensuring there was a device in every school last year. The rollout comes after campaigning from the Oliver King Foundation and its founder, Mark King, whose son died at 12 from a cardiac arrest while swimming at school. Guidance to support schools has been created, including awareness videos, and Education Secretary Gillian Keegan 
praised the work of the Oliver King Foundation and described the rollout as a huge milestone. Mr King stated, defibrillators save lives and that he hoped that families do not have to suffer the heartbreak of unnecessarily losing a child. This is for our Ollie. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, a while ago I asked you what is your go-to piece of tech? This week I had the pleasure of talking to Ian Kenyon, CEO of Wirral Respite and Alternative Provision, also known as RAP for short. So Ian, what is your go-to piece of tech in your setting? Thanks, Steve. In our organisation, we are absolutely embedded in sharing our information and our data via the cloud. And there's loads of software out there to do it. And there's a lot of bespoke software for our type of organisation, student information management services, uh, the likes of Sims or Arbor or, or, or things like that. But unfortunately, they're all built around big organisations, big schools, uh, schools with up to 1,200 students. Certainly not for schools that have a turnaround of students who are completing courses in 12 weeks, and those students who are potentially returning but require new files. We've tried proprietary software. It's very, very expensive. But actually, what we've fallen back to is what Google provides. Uh, Using G Suite, which is now Google Workplace, we have access to spreadsheets, to um, form-filling software for for data collection, Uh, Google Docs, which is... You're very familiar with everything via traditional Microsoft offices. Being able to link Docs uh, and Sheets and Forms together has been almost transformational for our organisation. It's not the cheapest. Uh, I will say the per-user price matches uh, what other software like Zoho or or Microsoft will do, um, but offers a simpler version for us um, and offers us some interactivity that we've never had before. It handles our email, it handles our our student information, so gathering attendance, it handles our finance, uh, so invoicing. Um, the, the, The way that the suite works, the way that the package works just works really well for us, but with very little additional investment in time, effort and training, um, Google offers us everything that we need. The final sort of element that, that has been transformational for us is then being able to use proprietary hardware such as Chromebooks or even Android phones and the ability for us to then transfer our data and, and to, to be live in the cloud at all times has been uh, a really good thing for our organisation. So there you have it, my number one go-to. It's definitely got to be Google Workplace. Thank you, Ian. As always, I'd love to hear what you want to know about tech. Do you have a go-to piece of tech? Let us know at TT Radio Official. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. And we're back. (laughs) Fatima, are you there? (laughs) You've got your... Okay, you're there. You've got your... You had your microphone um, switched off. We were talking about how language can obviously influence our students and 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 how they actually approach tasks what are some of the 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 interesting things that you've learned along the way about language influencing l1 influencing how uh, yeah. students approach tasks yeah that's that's a good question because it's really an issue in writing and it's really sometimes an issue in speaking, depending on culture. Um, we can really struggle to get certain more introverted learners or, or you know, um, to kind of feel freer and feel really uh, take it upon themselves to, to extend an answer, to really keep on talking until they are stopped mm. um, and not just wait for cues, social cues, um, or not need excessive ones. So there is a lot, you know, about culture that um, interferes with our performance, um, and in writing as well. Um, just you know, genres can be so different, and they misleadingly or confusingly they might have the same name. So what we understand by an academic essay, mm. even in English, can you know vary widely depending on whether we mean an IELTS essay, which some people debate is not really a fully academic essay in the sense that it's really just it's quite short short, isn't it (laughs) yes it's it's very short it's a snippet and you don't get to research the topic so 
uh, it's not fully uh, EAP because it's not just because it's short, but because it's not research and it's not relying on these integrated skills that we do need to do or use uh, at universities. So some students will have uh, different understandings about how to, or, or strange ones for, for mm. us, you know. Uh, and I was one because I, my mother tongue is Hungarian, so there are slightly different conventions in, in Hungarian as well around what an essay should look like or, or to do with the thesis statement in particular. So mm. in Hungarian, you're not really supposed to give away, um, not, not, you know, not um, in my understanding, so explicitly what you're going to talk about and be so super crystal clear about your um, topic and what you are going to exactly say about it at <clears throat> at length. Ah, oh, that's we, and, and how does that? Then you just you flesh it. You, you, you just you just allude to it. You just like come oh. <laughs> come with me on this journey, and you'll find out. But I'm not gonna be super explicit because then that's gonna be an insult on your intellect, dear reader. So that's that's a really different. Uh, you know, veiled and thinly veiled, and it's it's a different situation. Well, you know, um, mm. from what I I could tell, fascinating. Um, and from from all the reading that I did in my mother tongue, this is kind of a, a, a different, seductive, <laughs> alluring, alluding to kind of process, as opposed to this is what we are going to be talking about. These will be my key points. This is my mm. opinion, or these, or or if it's not an opinion essay. Um, but any other subgenre or, or essay type, as I, I'd like to call these, and as we know, there are four on IELTS. So mm. either it's a foreign against essay or an opinion one or a, <clears throat> a solution one. You know where uh, candidates have to kind of provide a a solution and or or a bunch of them. You know to solve one particular problem. And there is also what I call the discursive essay, which is really a tricky name because it's used differently. Mm. in other contexts. What I mean by this is that there is an essay type which is a bit closer to journalism and just discussing a topic without taking a stronger stance, either for or against or both or solving it. Just just discussing what contributed to it, what's happening, and just inform the reader. This is what I call the, the discursive essay. And learners really struggle uh, if we don't only, if we only, uh, them what an essay should look like but we don't also teach them you know what kinds of essay they might encounter on IELTS and how they might also be combined depending mm -hmm. on the task so they really have to be prepared to write hybrid responses and then if the task requires that you you know kind of flesh out what the advantages and the disadvantages are and then give your opinion then you need to notice that you're you're required to write such a combo um, and you need to plan it. You need to be mindful about the structure. You need to really uh, know where the, the train is going <laughs> that you're on when you're writing that essay. It cannot just be this unstructured, um, just, uh, you know, like free writing kind of exercise. Although, the, you know, the, write, the, the amount of time allowed for this is so little mm. um, that it would be tempting to just you know do some pre-writing but really the the job of a preparation course is to really teach all these soft skills to do with the writing process as well yeah how do i understand the task right um what kind of essay is required what is the scope of the the topic some some candidates really uh kind of get into trouble by keeping it wider or, or narrowing it down too much Mm. Um, so there are in my bootcamp program in, in the writing module, I really deal with this, and there are exercises around raising awareness of of all all of these things: the importance of the of understanding the topic, understanding the scope, understanding the required essay type, and and I really like using um, comparative analyses kind of exercises where students see the same topic repeated but you know dealt with differently mm. uh, in the exercise, and that tends to really help them notice. The importance um, of this. Mm -hmm. Can you just tell our listeners a little bit about boot camp? Um, it sounds brilliant. Yes, and it what was happens? really, really um, exhausting at the same time. You know, hence mm. the name. And um, it, you know, the, the, the beta version 
was modeled after the Celta in the sense that I wanted a one month long super intensive experience where people really come away equipped and confident. Wow. But the reality, yeah, that's very ambitious in the sense that the reality of most IELTS teachers is that they are actively teaching 20 to 40 hours a week mm. already. 40 hours? Yeah, unfortunately, that's really, really far from ideal in so many ways. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it just kind of showed me that um, requiring, you know, all this effort, uh, concentrated effort from them in such short notice is not really feasible going mm. forward. So I am in the process of turning my course into an, a self-study course, and it's gonna be mm -hmm. modular as of end of January, early February is what I am hoping to, to, to be able to put it out. And and that means that you know teachers will have the, the freedom um, to just complete it on, on their own time because Mm. Uh, there will be recordings in it and also all kinds of classroom materials with the answer key with with audio materials for them to not only get inspired and then you know then it would still be up on them to create their own materials which again can be a challenge if they are mm. so overheard but they you know my modules are also kind of full of practical exercises that can be picked up and and um, just taken to to the classroom with with you immediately so that's um, that's a different wow. product and a different format entirely. And I'm hoping it's going to be much easier for teachers to complete it that way. That sounds wonderful. Um, tell me, who are the people that inspire and influence you? Uh, non Women in ELT and non-native speakers who kick ass. <laughs> who, <laughs> who, really, who really learn the language, you know, whichever. So if they're... Um, English teachers, and uh, hopefully they will have learned it on a C1 plus level. So I, I really mm. am a huge proponent of this whole, you know, uh, movement. And it, it's been high time coming, you know, to kind of talk yep. about native speakerism. I really was one of the people who was come all the time um, discriminated against in Spain while I was job hunting for years in my 20s. I found nothing. So I came to Mexico and, you know, I, I don't regret anything. But um at the time i couldn't even push back much so when i got the the rejection letter and sometimes blatantly saying that you're not a native speaker and i already had the cambridge proficiency with a grade a i already had the celta i already had you know exams teaching experience i you know so i i didn't feel it was fair at the time and mm. i really am happy to see that this is all changing but us non-native speakers have to uh, you know, put in the work and make sure that we speak on a C1 plus or above mm. level. Because what I don't like seeing is when teachers, you know, on a B2, on a weak B2 level are kind of complaining that they weren't hired or whatnot. And, and I understand that even uh, getting to a C1 level requires a lot of effort and money uh, to pay for your English lessons, etc. But I don't think we should be complaining too much if, if they choose somebody who's fluent, whether a native or a non-native speaker, if our mm. level of the language, English in our, you know, for our purposes, but I'm also fluent in Spanish. So if I wanted to speak or teach Spanish today, I would, you know, probably do a methodology course or, or kind of, uh, but the point is that you've already got the, speak... you've already got the methodology there. It's, it would well, just be changing the, yeah. the language. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd have, have to buy books and I'd have to kind of tweak it on. It would be exhausting. I, you know, never say never. It might happen. <laughs> but, but the point is that learning the language is the hard part. And then, and then learning to teach it is, is, is also important, but I don't like seeing teachers, you know, not, not, not um, speaking well yet and pushing back on ads requiring native mm. speakers because that's understandable if if our if what we mean by our you know the fact that we speak english is, is b2 and there is a center that's looking and they want uh, to prepare candidates for the ielts and they cannot sell that teacher in that case so uh, this is the other side of the coin that's not talked about i'm very happy for mm -hmm. you know the, the the conversation to have started at all mm -hmm. um, but there's this side to it as well i think Mm. No, I think, I mean, I, I'm actually, I actually have Mary 
um, Marishin coming back next week for a little update on her crusade. She does a lot of um, for non-native teachers' rights. And, and um, I remember her saying once, you know, there are some native speakers that <laughs> live in a country for years, they never learn the language. And what kind of example is that really giving mm. the students? I think the students need to need to know that teachers yeah. have gone through that process. And I think certainly yeah. to get to C1 plus level, C2 level, um, there's an enormous amount of effort on the part of the teacher and that should be recognized. Yes, and it equips you with so much awareness um, of, of the struggle and of, the, of what's involved, mm. um, both the process and, uh, you know, of the process in that particular language. So there are different traps and pitfalls if somebody's learning Spanish. But because I have gone through those steps as well, I know that the subjunctive, you know, when the subjunctive begins around level B1 plus, B2, you know, all hell in it gets looser. So it's it's worth understanding the language you are planning to teach mm. through the learner's perspective or through the learner's eyes and experience as well. Yeah. Yeah. So what are your plans for the next year or so? What do you hope to accomplish? You've got course launching. <laughs> yes. And I think yeah. you're, you're, you're quite a busy person, I know. <laughs> yeah, I'm... And, and not organized enough often. So I'm really kind of new to marketing in a sense. And I'm, um, and I'm really struggling to find the right balance between writing actual content and, and doing marketing content. So, you know, I'm, I'm, that, that's a goal for this year to find the right balance, to put out the four modules, as you said, of, uh, of my course. And, um, and then depending on demand, I have a couple ideas for a few spin-off courses to do still with IELTS, but from, you know, shorter ones, maybe um, just supplementary ones, not not uh, to do with the core content mm. um, so much as the, as the basic um, BC, the bootcamp modules are going to be. Um, yeah. Thinking, thinking about your marketing, um, you use dogs a lot. What is the reason for that? <laughs> Uh, just that I don't have one now and I love dogs and, and people always assume that you know I'm so crazy about them because I surely have 15 at home and I think the opposite <laughs> is true given that I can't have one now because I'm so still kind of in, in this gypsy uh, lifestyle uh, I you know I'm, I'm looking to settle and I'm looking to have a dog soon and then more and if I become a millionaire I'm looking to open a dog shelter so that's mm -hmm. That's really a, a dream, dream as well, but um, no reason. So sometimes people are actually confused. And I have been asked this by IELTS teachers, you know, what is the relevance of dogs to IELTS? And absolutely nothing, except that I'm I'm talking about IELTS and I love dogs as well. And I think we do need some visual reminders and, and some anchoring um, mm. to stop the scroll, as we would say on social media. So I think it's... Um, well, they definitely stop me. Anything with a dog. <laughs> um, and yeah. any, you know, that's that's my that's my biggest distraction is if I get onto Facebook and mm -hmm. the little video comes up with a sort of dog that's been mm. saved and their progress and, oh, mm. you know, and dog training. Um, <laughs> they're, yeah. They're terrible because they kind of draw you in and, yeah. and I can't, you can't stop watching them. Um, but yeah, I, that's my, my weakness. And so I do always stop at your posts <laughs> because there's yeah. always a nice dog there. <laughs> yeah. So cute ones. They, they mm. are so amazing. And, and, uh, this is how we get stuck on social media, you see. So, mm. you know, this is why it's so tricky to kind of be very mindful of our time management when we go up there, because there are so, so many shiny things going on you know whether it's dogs or other you know more professional uh, discussions and materials and, and everything else it's super exciting yeah tell us a fun fact about you that most people don't know i am planning to do an essential oils course at some point in my life this is on my bucket list. oh wow <laughs> um and i am crazy about essential oils i love using them i love really for medicinal purposes so if i have a headache i, I you know I, 
thirst check if I'm not thirsty or if I'm not hungry or I go for a walk. And if all else fails, I use peppermint. Um, if I'm feeling a bit blue, then I use orange because it really is good for your mood. Mm. Uh, to sleep, I use lavender, etc. So I really want to learn more about the replications and, and including, you know, probably the chemical aspects, like how to store them, how to mix them, mm. how to which ones can be ingested, which cannot. And I, over the years, I have learned a couple of things just as a user, but I am... My, I have a so, strong sense of smell, so I, I'm in that, this sense, I'm a bit like dogs, perhaps. And, uh, <laughs> and I want to just, uh, you know, learn more about all this smelly world. Yeah. So if you were a dog, what breed would you be? <laughs> I'd be an English Beagle because uh, okay. I had one and they're so, I love them. They're so amazing. And they're super stubborn. So if, if you have one or those, those who have one will know that they are super persistent. So, you know, stubborn is a pejorative synonym mm. of, of persistent. And they, if they want something, especially if they have um, smelled something interesting to follow, they will follow it and they will not give up on it. And my ion's journey in a way has been a bit like that, honestly, because when I first started thinking about writing about IELTS, I pitched it to, to, to uh, the big publishers as well. And I got mm. very kind letters saying, no, not now, not this, not this way. But would you be interested in, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then I got offered other exams projects and writing mm. opportunities, which I'm very grateful for. And, and I did those things. But my, you know, I was especially keen on writing about IELTS. And I, somehow the timing wasn't right. And uh, it just didn't work out, you know, with, with the, in the official traditional route. And uh, and I didn't give up. So I was like, the, I, I, I have these books in me and I want to write one about each skill to do with mm. IELTS in particular. And then I just kept on pursuing this very stubbornly. So I think that's uh, that's a parallel. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, yeah, I think I'd probably be more of a Labrador, but um, mm. that's just because I've always had them my life and they are my favorite dogs they're so loving and loyal yeah um, they're just and a bit silly <laughs> they're fun and, yeah and probably I mean, more I've, intelligent, probably more no. intelligent uh, than beagles beagles are not the most intelligent partly because I think they, they so could be on a par yeah and they're certainly not jack russells um, who are super super smart i also have a i mean i have a um she's a rescue Maltese and when I first got her I thought you know I've, I've never had a small dog I always thought small dogs were small and yappy but she's smart she is so mm. clever mm. <laughs> she's so wow. and so I've actually changed my mind about small dogs yeah she's you see this is, yeah. <laughs> so educational you know to have pets and to realize there's so much you can learn from them there are so many prejudices that we might carry with us random ones mm. that they might help us debunk um, so yeah that's that's uh, if we are receptive we can learn a lot from from anything and anybody but you know pets included i, I totally believe that yeah they are they're pretty good um do you have a favorite quote um yes a lot to do with challenges and difficulties that we overcome and you know I don't know if this was actually said by anybody but I do love the saying it's it seems impossible until it's done mm. um, because IELTS candidates as well kind of are super terrified and they are also kind of like oh IELTS has this horrible reputation that it's a this impossibly hard exam uh, or you know, I have tried it already three times and I'm still not getting the right score in writing. Help me uh, is another scenario. And and then, you know, then we might get stuck and we might feel that it's it's impossible. We've bought all the books, we've done all the self-study, mm. um, but we're still not progressing. Um, you know, chances are it's, it's often not only to do with IELTS, but about any other difficulty we face in life. Probably we haven't found the right tools and the right experts to help us. Um, 
Definitely. And then when we do, and then when we put in the work and we we stay the course, then then we do achieve the thing. And uh, and I have achieved so many impossible things in my life, you know, in my personal life or in my mm. academic life, in my career, that seemed completely far fetched. Um, I di- I really didn't even dare to dream about certain things that that then just happened. So I no longer believe in impossible so firmly. How wonderful, wonderful, (laughs) wonderful. Fatima, thank you so much for coming on the show this morning. Um, I'd love to keep talking about IELTS. um, So we might have to make another appointment and and keep talking. Um, Do go back and have a little bit of a rest (laughs) before you get up. Thank you so much for, for joining me this morning. And it was really, really lovely to talk with you. Thank you for bearing with me, you know, to do with tech and, uh, you know, and, and, and being so encouraging and so, you know, good a host. It's really <laughs> been a pleasure talking to you as well. It's yeah. been lovely talking to you, Fatima, and um, I will be in touch soon. Thank you, everybody. I'll, I'll, be, I'll see you next week um, with Mary and um, have a lovely Wednesday. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.